Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I grew up in northeast Scotland myself, but no one taught us about the Picts or history going that far back. And it wasn't until I went to university and I studied art history, actually, and we did a course on early medieval art and sculpture and metalwork and like, and we learned about the Pictish stones then. As soon as I saw those, I was absolutely hooked. <laughs> I was like, that is absolutely amazing. People were like, oh, don't go and study the Picts. There's nothing to know. And people have been trying to crack the Pictish stones for more than a century. That's where madness lies, essentially. And so I went off and did a master's and then I did a PhD on earlier prehistoric archaeology. Little did I know at the time that this would become the main focus of my career at the moment. A lot more teachers in this area are getting contact now to say, oh, how do I find out more about the Picts? And I want to tell my pupils about it. So hopefully things will change and people will learn more about these things at an earlier age. My name is Gordon Noble and I'm Professor of Archaeology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. It's quite possible that just as Dr. Noble hadn't heard of the people known as the Picts, you may also be unfamiliar with them. If so, there's a good reason for that. Welcome to Lost Cultures Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. What can we learn about a place by delving into the people who once lived there? In what ways do cultures build upon each other as populations come and go? How do they complement each other, interact, and leave their marks on the people that come after them? And are cultures truly ever lost? even if the people move on. With most of the cultures we've discussed on this podcast, we found that, despite efforts by some, they were never really lost. Usually, people found ways to preserve their cultures as best they could under adverse circumstances. But of all the cultures discussed on this show, the picked people from what is now Scotland probably come closest to having actually been lost. That said, newfound interest in the Picts has led to newfound knowledge, and as a result, pieces of the picked legacy are perhaps more clear than they've been in several centuries. But there's still plenty that's shrouded in mystery. Just a moment ago, we met Dr. Gordon Noble, one of two guys joining us for this episode to help us learn about the Picts. Now, let's meet the other one. It all started off, really, in my early 20s. I'd always had an interest in ancient history, you know, the Romans and the Vikings after them. And I began to get an interest in King Arthur who obviously is a famous figure of legend, but there is a theory that he may have existed in the early medieval period as a kind of war leader after the Romans left Britain, and that he was fighting the Anglo-Saxons or early English who invaded after the Romans left. 
I started reading a bit about King Arthur and the possibility that he may have been a real figure of history. And in doing so, I came across mentions of the Picts up in Scotland who were around there at the time that King Arthur was supposed to have been fighting his wars down in England. I found that I was then less and less interested in King Arthur and more and more interested in the Picts. And interest in them really hit a peak in the late 80s when I was in my late 20s and started going on holidays up to the highlands of Scotland, which is where the homelands of the Picts were in ancient times. And I started visiting while I was there various monuments that the Picts have left behind. They've left behind these fabulous carved stones, which are quite unique. That really sort of got me into the idea of doing proper academic research on the Picts. Then it just carried on from there, and it was after that that I decided to do my master's degree in early medieval period in that northern part of Britain where the Picts were, and then the PhD after that. I'm Tim Clarkson. I'm a historian and author specialising in the early medieval period in primarily northern Britain, which includes Scotland. So who exactly are the Picts? The Picts are one of the ancient peoples of what we now call Scotland. They were around in the early medieval period, which is basically the first millennium AD. And they first appear in history around about the year 300. In AD 297, there's a praise poem that refers to the Picts and them being an enemy of Rome. And that's kind of back projected in history. But it's the first reference we know of to that term. They are mentioned by a Roman writer who says that the Picts were causing a lot of trouble for the Romans who had at that time conquered Britain and had been there for quite a while. This praise poem was by an orator named Eumanius and was written for Flavius Valerius Constantius Chlorus, the Roman emperor at the time. In the poem, Eumanius described how the Picti and Hiberni were the enemies of the Britons. Hiberni, by the way, is a form of the Latin name for the Irish. And before that, the groups recorded by the Romans were groups such as the Caledonians or the Maiati, and a whole series of, for want of a better term, tribal groups, referenced on Ptolemy's map, for example, in the second century. The Picts were one of a number of peoples who were raiding the Roman part of Britain, trying to take away loot and slaves. And the word that we have for them in this Roman document is a Latin word, Picti. It's a nickname, essentially. It means the painted people. So it's a bit of a pejorative nickname by the Romans, indicating that these were barbarians who tattooed themselves or painted themselves and were uncivilized and un Roman, the barbarians of the north, essentially. But why exactly were these enemies of Rome referred to as painted in the first place? As Dr. Noble mentioned, it may mean they literally painted their bodies, or it could mean they were permanently tattooed. That in itself is one of the mysteries or puzzles about the Picts, because it's hard to find any definite description of what this word Picti meant. The usual assumption is that it's something to do with putting designs or artwork on skin. Now, whether that just meant painting designs on the skin, 
or actual tattooing with, you know, needles imprinting those designs on the skin, it's hard to say. There are a couple of clues that I think point more to tattooing than just to body painting. There is a Roman reference to a Roman legion that had earned its reputation by fighting the Picts. And this description says that the soldiers of this legion used to watch the designs on the skin of the dying Pict who they'd slain in battle. And to me, that sort of sounds more like a permanent design on the skin rather than just something painted. There's another reference from Spain in the 600s. Spain had been part of the Roman Empire. This is a clergyman who's referring to the Picts as a people who use needles to imprint designs on the skin. Now, that's quite a specific reference to tattooing as far as I'm concerned. And I think permanent designs on skin would be something that would be more noticeable in those times and more worthy of comment than just merely body painting. And certainly in terms of giving an entire people a name that represented something like that, to me, it's something quite permanent that they're doing to their skin. Roman sources talk about the Caledonians, the predecessors of the Picts being tattooed. So it's more than possible. So it looks as though the name Picts is conjured up or invented by the Romans. And then the name seems to have been adopted by the Picts themselves. We don't actually know what they originally called themselves, but they seem to have adopted this sort of slang nickname that the Romans gave to them. But while the prevailing theory is that the Picts adopted a nickname given to them by the Romans, are there any other suspicions about the origins of the name? It's possible that the name was coined by the Romans because they had heard a name that the Picts used for themselves that sounded like Picti something that sounded in Roman ears like their Latin word Picti, but in the language of the Picts, and maybe meaning something similar. It's hard to say. We don't really know what the Picts called themselves, and the Picts have left really no written records, certainly of their early history, and everything about the meaning of that name is guesswork and a bit of speculation as well. What's interesting, though, is that that name and that identity seems to represent some sort of coming together or forging of, of a new identity in the North, replacing all those previous names of various groups living north of the frontier. So it could well be, as we find elsewhere in the frontier, that the groups at the fringes of empire are essentially coming together to resist Rome. And indeed, throughout the 4th century, in that kind of late Roman occupation, there's a series of battles between the Picts and the Romans, or raiding, certainly. In AD 367, the Picts get together with other groups like the Saxons, the Scots, and the Franks, and raid across the frontier and brings the Roman Britain to its knees for a couple of years before order is reinstated. And the Romans at that time, they've got a lot of trouble elsewhere in their empire, closer to Italy and to Rome itself. They're starting to pull troops out and they're basically washing their hands of Britain after ruling it for the best part of 400 years. And they're leaving the people of Britain to their own devices, basically saying, you've got to rule yourselves now. We can no longer 
protect you. You've got to sort things out yourselves and set up your own forms of government. And then the Romans withdraw from Britain in the early 5th century. But that Pictish identity goes on. And then we have Irish sources, we have Anglo-Saxon sources, etc. But they tend to be very limited, you know, Irish annals, for example, or one-liners about Pictish kings dying or being engaged in battle. So it's really like piecing together a history of a people from a number of tweets that have survived a nuclear holocaust, essentially. Very, very, very limited information. The pigs have always had this mysterious allure because of the lack of knowledge and this quite exotic name associated with them. It's in the 5th century that we seem to find the Picts emerging as a political power up there in the northern part of Britain. We hear of at least one king of the Picts, so we know that they've got at least one kingdom established up there. They're becoming quite a major player on the political scene of the British Isles of Britain and Ireland. Then we get into the 6th century and we start to get quite detailed documentation about the Picts. We hear about more of their kings. One particular king who lived in the far northeast of what is now Scotland. He was a very powerful king at the time. A lot of other territories under his rule, like the Orkney Isles off the top of the coast of Scotland. We hear of him through religious writings that are mostly concerned with a saint called Columba, who had come over from Ireland to try and convert the pagan peoples of the northern part of Britain to Christianity. One of his missions was to the Picts, and he is said to have met this king at uh, this king's fortress and tried to convert him to Christianity, because the Picts at that time were pagan. Then we find that Christianity does start to take a foothold amongst the Picts, and by the time we move on into the 600s, they are starting to become quite a major Christian power, really. At that time, most of Western Europe was adopting Christianity, so it's not just Britain, it's Ireland, it's France, it's Germany as well. They're sort of using Christianity as a kind of look back to the Roman Empire, which in its later phases had been a Christian empire. So they're using Christianity to an extent as a way of giving themselves a sort of connection with this great imperial power of the past, which in turn would sort of enhance their status in a way. They are expanding their power and coming into contact with other powers in the northern part of Britain. One of these powers is the Scots, who at that time have a kingdom in the west of northern Britain in an area called Argyll. The Scots have their homeland there and have set up powerful kingdoms of their own in that area. And they're having dealings with the Picts, sometimes hostile, sometimes intermarriage between royal families, but sometimes warfare and invasion. And the Picts are also having contact with the English, who have got a kingdom called Northumbria, which is south of Edinburgh, capital of Scotland now. The English, their ancestors had come over to Britain from Germany just after the end of the, the Roman rule in Britain, but they had set up their own kingdoms in Britain and were also looking to expand. And this English kingdom of Northumbria was trying to expand northwards and inevitably came into contact with the kings of the Picts expanding southwards. So they had a few wars around late 600s and early 700s. So that brings us into the 8th century. In that century, we see the sort of high point of the power of the Picts 
one Pictish king in particular, takes over pretty much the whole of, of that northern part of Britain, what we would now call Scotland. He, at one point, is ruling the Scots, the most dominant and most militarily powerful king in northern Britain at that time. The king that Clarkson is referring to was known as Oinus Mac Fergusa, or Angus son of Fergus, and his reign lasted from 732 AD until his death in 761. He sort of sets the scene for the later power of the Picts because the authority that he had, the great regional power that he wielded, was continued by some of his successors who followed him as kings of the Picts. So by the time we get into the early 800s, the Picts are still the dominant power in the north. Most of the time, they've got the Scots sort of as vassals of theirs, really. And it's really only when the Vikings arrive around the first half of the ninth century, another set of invaders who've come from Scandinavia, from Norway and Denmark, and they come as raiders, they're very fierce warriors, They sail over to Britain and cause a lot of havoc to the political setup. They have a battle between a Viking army and an army of Picts and Scots who are joined together as allies. And in that battle, the Vikings kill the king of the Picts and his vassal, the king of the Scots. And after that, we find that there's a period of political chaos and various characters come forward to try and become the new king of the Picts. Eventually, a guy called Kinaith sets up a new royal dynasty of the Picts. But by that time, the Picts and the Scots are kind of merging together. So after being enemies in previous centuries, like 200 years before, they're now almost merging together as one people. And it may be the pressure of the Vikings is kind of forcing them to join and not be separate people anymore. By the end of the ninth century, the king of the Picts is starting to call himself the king of Alba. Now, Alba seems to be the name of a new kingdom that incorporates the Picts and the Scots together as one people. We then start hearing less and less about the name Picts and more and more about this name Alba, this new kingdom. And when we get into the 900s, we find that the name Picts pretty much vanishes off the scene altogether. Strangely enough, the people of that kingdom start calling themselves Scots, even though quite a lot of them have Pictish ancestry. And that's one of the mysteries of the Picts, in a way, as to why their name vanished when they themselves was still there. It was just that their kings, we think, decided that a new political order had to be brought into place. And as part of that, the old Pictish identity was somehow redundant and was replaced by this idea of this unified Pictish Scottish nation that eventually became Scotland. And that really brings us to the end of Pictish history. Let's back up for a moment, though, to get Dr. Noble's take on the later history of the Picts based on the scant evidence left behind. We know of the Picts for six centuries or so, late Roman origins, and then they go on to become these powerful kingdoms occupying northern Britain up until the late 9th century, early 10th century. 
Because of the limited historical sources, we know that there were Pictish kings. There appears to be an over-king since the 7th century, for example. But again, very limited information. And equally, the kind of end of the Picts is, is also kind of shrouded in mystery to an extent in terms of it's very peculiar what happens to references, but just seem to really come to an end in that late 9th century context. And already by the 12th century, there was lots of mythology about the Picts, with Norwegian sources, for example, describing them as pygmies, you know, tiny people who lived in the ruins of prehistoric structures up in the Northern Isles, and they only came out at certain times of day. And also the idea that they were killed by the Scots. The Scots are from Western Scotland, and they spoke Gaelic, and is the origin of the name of Scotland today. It was you know, 12th century sources that the Scots massacred the Picts, very much a kind of Game of Thrones-style event where they were invited to dinner and they were massacred by the Scots. But there's nothing in contemporary sources that suggests that. So what scholars think today is that it's more of a change in the regime at the top. So there's some sort of merging of the royal lines of the Picts and the Scots in the 8th and 9th centuries AD and the Gallic kings and lineages come to the fore. And likewise, Gallic seems to become the main language and Pictish clearly dies out, certainly by 10th, 11th centuries. So there seems to be a language change, there seems to be changes in kings and the ruling elite and that Pictish identity disappears. So again, that's something that people have been hugely interested in, and yet we have very little sources to reveal much more about how that process actually happens. Before we go on, let's pause to note something unusual about how it is believed the Picts chose their kings. There's a kind of a legend or a tradition that was around in the time of the Picts they chose their kings through the female bloodline, not through the male bloodline, which in those days would be quite an unusual way of choosing your next king in most early medieval cultures in Europe, certainly at that time. The normal succession would be father to son. The king would die. His son would become the next king. Amongst the Picts, what seems to be going on is that the sons aren't succeeding the fathers as kings. A king dies, and it's not his son who succeeds him. It's his sister's son, or his brother, if they had the same mother. It's called matrilineal succession, where the female bloodline is more important in choosing the next king than the male bloodline. People are quite fascinated by that and kind of wonder if it means that the Picts had a, a special status for women as a whole and that women perhaps had more authority or legal right amongst Pictish society than they did, say, amongst the Scots or amongst the Irish or the Anglo-Saxons. I'm not convinced that there's any sort of implication for the status of women in Pictish society from this mystery of, of whether they chose their kings to the female line or not. But that whole thing is another of those enigmas and puzzles that surround the Picts that draws people in. It's all part of this intangible legacy they've left. So given that they essentially disappeared from the historical record at a certain point, what may have been the best first clues that eventually led to the current knowledge of the Picts that's now available? Still relatively limited, but certainly much expanded from what it once was. After all, let's remember that other than relatively brief mentions and texts from societies the Picts came into contact with at some point, 
They didn't leave many clear indications of their existence for those who didn't know to look for them. Well, I think the real interest in the pics in terms of rediscovery of that Pictish identity was the interest in their symbol stones. That was the only thing that you could really grasp onto when you were looking at the archaeology of the Picts, was that there are about 200 of these standing stones across eastern Scotland, more or less in the territories that we think the Picts occupied. They are the most enduring legacy of the Picts, certainly the most visually stunning legacy, probably of any of the peoples of early medieval Britain. From Fife up to the Northern Isles and Western Isles, you find these monuments with these really enigmatic carvings on them. These symbols are probably the most mysterious aspect of the Picts, and certainly the aspect of the Picts that most people encounter first. The interesting thing about these symbols is that they are quite sort of standard over a huge area. The entire area where we know the Picts live, which stretches from one side of Scotland right over to the other and over to the islands on the west and to the islands on the north side. This remarkable standardisation of these symbol designs we find carved on these stones. They're usually pairs of symbols. They're abstract symbols in some cases, things like what we call double discs and crescents and V-rods and all these strange names that archaeologists have came up with to describe these symbols. But also occasionally things like animals or objects like mirrors and combs. So you'll have two symbols or you might sometimes have three. So there's some kind of communication or message going on there. These symbols have been carved on these stones for a purpose to say something to people walking past. And those people would presumably understand what the message and meaning of these symbols was. But we don't have any way of decoding what these symbols mean, although they are some kind of alphabet. Since the 19th century and before, people have been trying to understand what on earth this symbolic system meant and trying to crack the code behind that. And it was that interest in those in the 19th century that really led people to try and discover more about the Picts. And it was in the 1860s that really that link between the symbol stones and the Picts began to be made in a more concrete fashion. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alicia Prakash, and you're listening to Lost Cultures Living Legacies, a podcast from Travel and Leisure. The first, so the earliest set of symbol stones, these uh, rough boulders that we see quite often still in the places where they were set up in the landscape, in fields or whatever, they seem to have been put up in the 5th and 6th centuries. They are then developed or superseded in the 7th and 8th centuries by a second type of symbol stone, which are not rough boulders, but shaped slabs where the stone has been shaped into a virtually a rectangular slab that is then placed upright in the ground. 
and it's got the Pictish symbols on one side and possibly scenes of hunting or scenes from the Bible or some kind of religious imagery. And then on the other side, they're carved with a huge cross, very ornate with lots of Celtic scroll work and patterns around it. So they're known as cross slabs. And the standard of carving is so fine even now after more than a thousand years of standing in the landscape that they are quite breathtaking and not surprisingly frequently photographed by tourists who visit those parts of Scotland where these stones are found. We come to the third group of stones. Now these don't have the old mysterious symbols. What we do have is a big cross on one side And the other side, it might be, again, sort of biblical scenes or patterns, Celtic scroll work or something. But the important thing about those stones is the Pictish symbols, for some reason, are no longer required on these monuments. So there's some reason why the Picts at that time decided that the old symbols no longer had relevance to the way they were commemorating people with these big stone monuments. But again, the standard of craftsmanship is absolutely breathtaking. And there are similar standards of craftsmanship on other carved stones from around that time in other parts of Britain, in England and Ireland and Wales. But the Pictish stones, some of them are enormous things. There's one that's six metres tall. It's got a battle scene carved on it running all the way down. There's hundreds of little figures fighting and they're all carved You know, you see a monument like that and you think there's something really special about the culture that produced that. And that's all part of what makes the pics so fascinating. Thankfully, though, symbol stones, as fascinating as they may be, are no longer the only clues to go by and search for more information about how the pics lived. It was only in the 1960s that people began to find Pictish sites, things like high-status forts and a few burials, and still it's very limited numbers of sites. We've probably got a few dozen preserved skeletons from this time period, less than 20 dated forts of this time period, and again, very little in the way of rural settlement. But there has been progress in the last decade with more and more settlements being found, sites like Rhiney and Arkhead and, and Aberdeenshire that we've been leading excavations on. So... Finally, I think we're beginning to make some progress and understand more about the Picts and their lifestyles and their traditions and finding some quite amazing revelations in terms of links to the Mediterranean, the scale of society at this time period. The archaeological excavations that have been happening in recent years are uncovering a huge amount of information about the settlements of the Picts, especially what we would call the elite settlements, high-status settlements, For instance, there's a very large fortress on the eastern coast of Scotland, a place called Berghead. They've found that it was a very important Pictish fortress, obviously a place where kings would be possibly living there and certainly using it as part of their defensive network. There are also elite, high-status ecclesiastical settlements that have been excavated. There's a Pictish monastery to a place called Port Mahomac, a bit further north from Berghead, up on the eastern side of Scotland. That's been shown now through excavation to be a very, very important Christian ecclesiastical site throughout the Pictish period and probably one of the major monasteries of the Picts, if not for a time the major monastery for their kingdom. The archaeology seems to be finding quite a bit of information about how ordinary Picts 
lived as well. Um, the ordinary Picts tend to be quite invisible in history because they don't tend to get written about by the people who were writing at the time. The monks and, and the chroniclers at the time were more interested in what kings and bishops were doing and less interested in the people who farmed the land and kept everything going. But archaeology is helping us to understand the distribution of Pictish settlements and where the population lived, the kinds of areas, the kind of landscape that they chose for their homes. It's through archaeology at the moment that quite big strides are being made in our understanding of the Picts. That's likely to continue for quite a while. Uh, one of the main ones is the Northern Picts Project, which is run from the University of Aberdeen. And they're quite instrumental in a lot of these excavations that are going on at the moment. Indeed, on social media, you can actually keep up to date with the things they're finding each week. As both our guests describe, while many of the details about Pictish history are still somewhat mysterious, many of the broad strokes have at least come into better focus in recent years, though even those can surely be debated among scholars who have differing interpretations of the available information. But let's return for a moment to those burial sites that Dr. Noble mentioned earlier. You begin to get these field cemeteries developing by the 5th century. And that's quite interesting in itself because there are very few cemeteries known prior to that until you go back to the late Bronze Age, really, a good thousand years or more before that. So it does seem to mark a period when people are perhaps laying more definite claims to land or marking the importance of lineage and inheritance. And you begin to get these quite impressive burial monuments being built square and round cairns, quite different to what you find in most other regions, although generally they cover east-west burials, similar to late Roman practices of burial, or at least we think was developing elsewhere. So it's an interesting period in which perhaps an emphasis on the importance of particular families, ancestry being important. And that's really interesting if you think about what's going on in that time period in terms of establishment, certainly in a post-Roman context, of the first documented kingdoms and kingship in this part of the world. Rulership obviously being important, and so these field cemeteries might be part of that process in which particular families or groups come to the fore and are able to increase their rulership over larger and larger groups, broadly speaking, as time goes on. But again, because of lack of archaeological investigation and soil conditions in eastern Scotland, it's quite acidic. We don't always get very good preserved human remains in these monuments. And unlike English examples further south, they didn't bury their dead with grave goods. So that's frustrating, but actually quite similar to what you find in Wales and Ireland at the time period. That limits what you can say about the identity of the dead and limits the recovery of objects associated with dress and identity and the like. But the monuments themselves tell you a lot about the investment in the dead and more and more being found as time progresses. So things like aerial photography in the 1970s and onwards identify more of these cemeteries. And now developer-funded archaeology, where you're building motorways or supermarkets, are beginning to uncover cemeteries that we didn't know about. So... The Picts identify themselves through their mortuary archaeology. According to Tim Clarkson, the lack of grave goods fits with the generally accepted idea that most Picts were probably Christian by about 650 AD, as Christianity tended to forbid such items other than personal adornment like rings. Yet, even though Pict burial sites may not include grave goods, other excavations are turning up items of interest. 
There are quite a few artefacts being found even now from the excavations that are going on at the moment. So they're finding small items of jewellery and personal ornament and things like that, all of which help to build up a picture of how these people lived, how they looked and what their appearance was like, as well as the stones there have been over the years, not so much recently, but certainly in the past, some kind of iconic discoveries. There was a hoard of silver found quite a long time ago, which was adornment, silver jewellery, really. Some of it carved, inscribed with these same symbols that we see on the stones. And you see photos of this silver ornamentation now, and it looks stunning. You know, if you saw it displayed in a jewellery store, you'd think it was just fantastic. The level of sophistication of the artwork and the craftsmanship, it's like what we see on the stones, it's really really high level of artistic talent producing this kind of stuff. And even when it's not an actual artefact, it may be a fortress on top of a hill is excavated just by looking at how the ramparts were built, how the gateways were set out, how the interior buildings were laid out and what the interior buildings were used for. All this can be discovered through archaeological excavation and can give us real insights into what was going on on these settlements. So every bit of archaeology that's unearthed goes with the rest to help us to build up this all-round picture of how these people live. Dr. Noble told us about two specific excavations he's worked on that have been extremely enlightening. We've been excavating a site called Rhiney, which was a project that really made this whole endeavour take off. So there were a number of these symbol stones, including the Rhiney Man, which is this fantastic carving of an individual carrying an axe over their shoulder. And that was found in 1978 by the farmer ploughing his field and he hit this big stone and he uncovered this individual. So we were like, what on earth is that? In the same year, they flew over the site and they identified the enclosures where the stone was found. But no one had investigated until we started work there in 2011. Indeed, we had no big expectations of what we might find there. But over the course of five seasons of excavation, we found this incredible Pictish settlement dating from the late Roman period, the 4th century through to the 6th century. And there we found timber buildings inside the enclosures. We found one of the standing stones that's still there today with a carving of a so-called Pictish beast and a salmon on it, stood at the entranceway to the settlement. And we find the stone socket for what might be the Rhiney Man also standing at the entranceway. And then inside we found shards of amphora that are 5th, 6th century in date, and they came from the eastern Mediterranean for holding wine. So the Picts were drinking Mediterranean wine. They were importing glass from western France for drinking goblets. We found high-status dress accessories, most importantly, a huge assemblage of metalworking waste. So they were part of a huge production centre that was producing high-status brooches and pins and the like. So that was an incredible discovery and a site that was completely undocumented and previously unknown. Most recently, we've been looking at a hill fort that overlooks that site called Tapanoth. And this was a site that was known about for years as the second largest hill fort in northern Britain. It's 17 hectares in extent and was thought to be late Bronze Age in date, so you know, well before the picks. But we began excavating there in 2019 and through LIDAR survey and photogrammetry survey, we discovered there was at least 800 houses within that hill fort. And our excavations so far, we've now dug about a dozen of these houses, and they all date from the late Roman periods, again in that period when the Picts are first mentioned, through again to the 6th century. 
So now we've gone from knowing nothing about picture settlement in that landscape to a site that has 800 houses that that time period. If we think about we've got a few dozen known houses in the rest of Scotland, then it shows you what we can find through new archaeological work. But what those sites also show you is the difficulties of survival. So the houses on Tap North, they're built without earthfast posts and things like that. They seem to be turf walls, floor layers and hearths, which, you know, Scotland has been intensively cultivated over the last few centuries. And any Pictish houses of that style would just be removed. And I think that's why we're lacking so many sites in terms of just the way they built their houses was different to what came before. So it's a big difficulty in identifying the sites. But again, Ryan Tapano shows you what we can find if the circumstances and the funding is there to launch these investigations. In recent years, some studies have claimed that around 10% of Scottish men have DNA markers that connect them to the Picts. We asked our guests about this. There's one I get asked about all the time. People often post saying, oh, I'm 10% Pictish or 50% Pictish or the like. And, you know, there may be inheritance from Pictish lines, undoubtedly, in eastern Scotland. The thing is, it's all based on modern DNA patterns. It's based on analysing the DNA of all the modern people living in Europe and saying, well, there's a particular grouping of DNA types in eastern Scotland, and therefore that must be a Pictish signature. But obviously, we know from historical sources, there was a whole series of incoming populations, the Normans and Gallic settlers from the West, and think about all the modern populations coming into Scotland in the last century or so. So I think it remains to be seen what that modern DNA evidence actually tells us about people's relationship to these communities living you know, almost a thousand years or more ago. And so what we really need more of is ancient DNA from Pictish burials to begin to piece together how the ancient signatures in eastern Scotland would relate to the modern DNA sequence. There's some work in our department on that, looking at genetics of Pictish burials, and I think a few other projects are also beginning to look at this. So the numbers of burials, again, is a big limiting factor. There's only a certain number of burials, and obviously we need to preserve skeletal material as much as we can for future generations. It's slow progress, but hopefully in the next few years we should be able to say more about that and begin to piece together that genetic jigsaw. I've not myself done much research onto the sort of genetic side, the ancestry side, but I've been in contact with people for whom this is a really important part of the way that they unearth their own ancestry. And to me, it's absolutely no surprise at all to find that a large portion of the people who are inhabiting Scotland now are descended from the Picts, because even though the Picts seemed to vanish from history around the time that the Vikings were around. They didn't vanish from the land. They stayed. It was just that they changed their identity. Because they stayed, their descendants carried on living on the land and are therefore still around today. I don't know what proportion or what percentage of Scotland now could claim to have Pictish ancestry, but I imagine it would be quite a sizable amount. And no surprise, really, because the Picts were obviously quite a numerous people. They inhabited a huge area of Scotland. And 
there must be a lot of their genetic heritage still around today. So whether they're descended from the Picts or not, how can people who may be interested in their history today actually interact with what remains of the culture? And what is the general state of tourism around the Picts in Scotland these days? The starting point would be Edinburgh, capital city of Scotland. There's a museum there called the National Museum of Scotland, and they've got a large collection of original Pictish carved stones in there, all of them with sort of information panels telling you what they're about, when they were carved and all that kind of thing. And in that museum, because it deals with the whole history of Scotland, you can see the Picts almost in context because other parts of the museum deal with earlier and later periods of Scottish history. So you go into the bit where the Pictish stones are and you see straight away where the Picts fit into this broad sweep of Scottish history. And then depending on where one as a tourist is planning to go in Scotland, if you were planning to concentrate on Pict sites and the stones, you'd be better off staying on the eastern side of Scotland. So from Edinburgh, you could travel a short distance north into an area called Fife. There's a small city there called St Andrews that has a famous university, a famous golf course. They have a cathedral there, which has its own museum. And again, that has quite a lot of Pictish material in there, including one of the most iconic Pictish carved monuments. It's known as the St Andrews Sarcophagus, and it's a stone coffin which is made of separate square panels, each one really intricately carved with figures and designs and patterns. And there's great smaller museums like Elgin Museum, Inverness Museum, Tarbot Discovery Centre, all good collections of picture stones and archaeological material from that time period. So it's great to see that industry beginning to engage with the sources that we have and the material we have. You can go further north into Perthshire and there are quite a few very interesting Pictish sites to see. You could spend quite a few days there. There's one in particular called the Meagle Museum. So it's a little village called Meagle and it's a small museum but it's got a huge number of Pictish carved stones in there. Some of the most famous symbol stones are in there. You can really see them close up. Also in that same part of the world is another of the most iconic Pictish monuments. It's at another little village called Dunning, and there's a church there called St. Serf's Church. And inside is an enormous cross, wonderfully carved with all kinds of Celtic designs, intricate patterns. It's a very, very impressive monument to see and to photograph. And it's got the name of one of the Pictish kings on it as well, which makes it quite unique. You can't really see it very closely, but it's been spotted by archaeologists. And then quite a short distance away, another small village called Abalemno. They've got a few Pictish stones just dotted around the village, not in a museum. There's a couple by the side of the road as you come through. The most famous stone at Abalemno is in the churchyard where all the modern graves are now. And it's just standing there. It's a huge stone slab with a big cross on one side. And on the other side is an amazing battle scene. Three rows of action, almost like you'd read it in a comic book. We don't know what battle it is, 
One of the most popular theories is that this battle scene carved on this stone commemorates a great Pictish victory over the English of Northumbria in the year 685, a battle that is supposed to have occurred not far away from this village of Abilemnum. And then you can go further north into Aberdeenshire. You've got that fortress I mentioned before, Berghead on the coast. Further north, beyond Inverness, you've got the monastery at Port Mahomac, which is very well worth seeing. So all along that eastern side of Scotland, you can spend days following your own trail of Pictish sites and seeing the most amazing monuments along the way. I'd always recommend people from overseas to hire a car because a lot of these little places where these museums are and these carved stones are really off the beaten track. It's an amazing landscape of stones to just sort of travel around and then you just look to one side of the road and you see this big stone just standing there in a field and you think, I've got to go and see that. Yeah, you can have some fun seeking these places out. Thank you to our guests, Tim Clarkson and Dr. Gordon Noble. Be sure to follow Lost Cultures Living Legacies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love your feedback. If you could, please rate this podcast and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at travelandleisure.com slash lostcultures. In our next episode, we'll explore the Rapa Nui culture on the island of the same name, which many people know as Easter Island. So make sure to come back for that. Until then, enjoy your travels. Lost Cultures Living Legacies is a production of Travel and Leisure and Dot Dash Meredith. I'm your host, Alicia Prakash. Lottie Leigh-Marie is our executive producer. Jeremiah McVeigh is our writer and co-producer. Dominique Arciero is our audio engineer and editor. Stacey Leska is our researcher. Kyle Avalone is our fact checker. This episode was reviewed by Brian Ahern, a panelist on Dot Dash Meredith's Anti-Bias Review Board, as well as Mackenzie Price, director of Anti-Bias Initiatives. Jennifer Del Sol is Director for Audio Growth Strategy and Operations at Dot Dash Meredith. Nina Ruggiero is Digital Editorial Director for Travel and Leisure. Maya Catru-Levine is Senior Editor at Travel and Leisure.